walk into the room with your pencil in your hand. You see somebody naked, you say... Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz pianist, producer, vocalist, composer, radio host, and very busy man, Ben Sidron. He is a force in music and jazz. He was born in Racine, Wisconsin, and still resides in that fine state. He is on the heels of so much good work, as usual, including 2016's Picture Him Happy, which is an apt description for him. He was turned on at the age of 13 by the music of Horace Silver and Blue Mitchell, and he never got over that jazz bug. He has a huge host of vignettes that make up for his lucky, good, and fulfilled existence. He has worked as a studio musician for the Stones, produced albums for Van Morrison, hosted the NPR series Jazz Alive and VH1's New Visions, and he has grand tales of interviewing Miles Davis and so many others. So please get to know Ben and dig these vignettes, my friends. Ben, it's an honor to speak with you. Thank you for taking some time out for me today. I appreciate it. Not at all, Joe. My pleasure. So let me go ahead and start off right off the top here and just kind of generically get kind of a temperature for your life right now. What has been going on with you lately? Well, uh, I'm eternally in the same place in a way. I mean, I continue to write songs, to record, to play gigs. uh, I've got other projects that involve uh, writing. You know, I've written four or five books. Uh, I travel. I spend a lot of time with my family. It's consistent. It's been like this for 45 years you know it seems apropos that your latest album picture him happy has that title because it seems to me the thread that goes through your work is happiness so not only with this album but with your body of work that you put out what makes you so happy about what you do that i get to do it i guess i mean i'm doing exactly when i was 13 years old i would have dreamed of doing i mean when i was 13 years old the idea of Meeting Horace Silver, for example, I, I would have traded anything for that. And the fact that I got to know him and I got to know a lot of other great musicians and I got to be a peer or at least a comrade of a bunch of them, um, you know, it's a tremendous uh, thing I wake up with every day. And uh, and I love the music really pulled me through. I have to say that if, if I remain positive through all the craziness, it's because I was connected to the music. So I never drifted off and got lost and then i got lucky i i met my my wife in 1966 and we're still together so i guess all those things love and luck gets you through i guess (laughs) you know the one thing that i want to ask you too up front because this is kind of a, a realm that i'm involved with myself is when did that facade of say miles or horace or any of these guys kind of melt away into a humanness and a connection that you just felt natural, like putting on a pair of shoes? Well, I've always found uh, the people who played jazz, you know, historically, were really interesting people, great people. That was my kind of romantic image of them as a kid. You know, I always wanted to know where this music came from. And if you listen to the music, you find great compassion and tenderness and hipness and intellectual capacity. So I always assumed... Uh, they were like that. But I have to tell you, there was an experience back, I, this is in the 60s, let's see, it was probably 69 or 70 or something. I was in New York. Uh, I was at a club named Slugs on the Lower East Side, and I was with a drummer named George Brown, who was a good friend of mine. I had known George all through the 60s. 
And he went to New York eventually and uh, played with uh, Sonny Rollins and Archie Shep, and, and he was an acquaintance of Coltrane and all these people. Anyway, George uh, that night introduced me to McCoy Tyner, and he uh, said, uh, McCoy, this is a friend of mine, Ben Sidron, a fine pianist, and uh, Ben, this is McCoy. And I reached out my hand and I said, McCoy, it's, it's an honor to, to meet you. And McCoy said to me, Oh, Ben, don't do that to me. And I was thunderstruck, you know. I, I understood immediately that by saying that, I was like putting up a wall between us. Yeah. You know, if you put if you put a musician up a, on a pedestal, you're basically removing that musician from the community. And and uh, I never forgot that. That's very interesting because that would be a natural guttural response. Did you change the way you approach musicians after that instead of saying it's an honor? How did you switch it up after that? Well, I don't know if I ever did anything intentionally, but that got my attention. When I started to do uh, work for National Public Radio, you know, in the 80s, I did all this NPR stuff. I really had kind of a mission, and the mission was to show that, that jazz musicians were just like everybody else, that... You know, people always tended to, and probably still do, romanticize or fictionalize the jazz life. And I've always felt that the jazz musicians were just like everybody else, uh, only more so, you know, uh, like canaries in the coal mine. We're more sensitive to some of the, the conditions that we all live under. So uh, that, that's been part of what I've always wanted to do was reveal that jazz players were living the, the life that everybody lives. You know, I always kind of use, especially after talking with folks like Dr. Lonnie Smith or even a Sonny Rollins, that I always imagine them in a jazz Jedi council in Cloud City. And it seems to me that there's just an acculturated level of wisdom and living that goes into these guys. It's just appreciation for everything they've worked to get to that moment, whether it's musically or just being a human being. Do you get that from a lot of these guys? Yeah, it, it, it's just a human experience. You know, uh, listen, if you spend eight hours a day blowing through a copper tube for 20 years, <laughs> at the end of those 20 years, the copper tube has not changed one bit, but you have personally been transformed completely. The, the the process of being a musician is transformative, not to the instrument, but to the musician. So the Jedi Council you're talking about is a bunch of guys in practice rooms. Let me ask you this. Let's go back to the alpha of your existence, your childhood at Wisconsin. Talk to me about how you accumulated this very wistful love of not only music, but jazz. Well, you know, that's one of those mysteries. I heard my first uh, record uh, that was jazz related, I guess, uh, when I must have been six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in then. It was a boogie woogie record, uh, Pine Tops Boogie. And uh, it just lit me up. That's, that's all I can tell you. It just lit me up. And then later on, when I was like 12, I heard a Horace Silver record. And I couldn't stop listening to it. I didn't know why, but somebody had given it to me, and I had a little record player. And I just played it over and over and over and over and over again. And I had this image that the more I listened to it, that maybe I could understand it. You know, back then, they didn't teach jazz. If you wanted to learn how to play jazz, generally speaking, you just had to ear it. You know, you had to listen to it. I don't know what else to say except that it just spoke to me and it called me, and it's all I really related to for some time.
as you alluded to, since you were 13, you wanted to do this and you wanted to, you know, to meet somebody like Horace was huge. So based on the beginnings of you falling in love with jazz through Horace, how how huge was that to actually meet him and to, and to connect with him as a human? Well, that's a good question. You know, by the time I physically met Horace, I had done a lot of uh, playing and, and, and traveling and a lot of radio interviews. I, I was At one point, I was hosting this show called Jazz Alive for NPR, and my job was interviewing great musicians, and I was very comfortable with it. But when I finally met Horace, I was stunned. I couldn't speak, and I said to him, Horace, I'm really sorry. I, I feel <laughs> awkward. I, I, I'm not sure what to say to you because your music was so important to me. And he was wonderful. He said, oh, that's okay. We all go through it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And we became <laughs> friends. Beautiful. Well, the one thing, too, that I want to ask you that had, and I've always kind of in my own realm of, of interviews and just thinking about the realm of jazz, it had to be huge to sit down with Miles Davis and have a conversation. What kind of experience, because it's very rare, there's very few people, I think, on this planet in the history of, of life that have sat down with someone that's that big and towering. What was it like to discuss things with Miles Davis? That's interesting. You know, I, I had met him, not, not officially, a, a couple times. I'd been in rooms with him. But the day that I went to his house in Malibu, I went out there with Tommy Lupuma. Now, Tommy's a, a producer who was working on a record that became Tutu at the time. And uh, Tommy and I have been great friends since 1972. Tommy arranged the interview for me. And he said to me, yeah, uh, I'll, no, no problem. He said, don't worry about a thing. Miles is great. Miles just, he has a great bullshit detector. He said, if you come at him with bullshit, uh, that's, that's the last word anybody gets. He said, just be yourself, man. Everything will be fine. And uh, Tommy is a very sweet, down-to-earth guy. And we drove up to Miles's pad and knocked on the door. And uh, the door opened, and there was Miles. And Tommy said, you know, they hugged each other. And Tommy said again, you know, hey, Miles, this is my friend Ben. And Miles hugged me and said, come on in, come on in guys, you know. And we, <laughs> we, we went in, and we hung out for a couple hours before we did the interview. Miles was cooking. He made... Uh, you know, beans and rice, and he took me on a tour of his pad, and he showed me, uh, he, he took me, at one point he was talking about Cicely uh, Tyson, who was his wife at the time, and, and, and the amount of clothes she had. He said, man, you got to come up here and see this. And he took me, he showed me her closet, and he, all these records <laughs> that he was listing. It was just a hang, really. And then, uh, uh, you know, a couple hours into it, he said, so you want to interview me, huh? I said, yeah, man, I, I really do. He said, okay, let's go. And we went and sat down and we talked. And so it was part of a hang, really. It it, it wasn't like walking into a cold, bare room and, and there was the, the Magi, you know. I mean, it was it was a guy. And, you know, the fact that another guy, Tommy, brought me into it uh, just made it very comfortable. And it made me uh, just feel like I was... Uh, part of this hang that's that's all it was to it but at the end of the day the author of kind of blue and everything that we know is transformative music is really just a man making beans in his kitchen don't you think well that's what i was saying you know jazz musicians are the same as you know everybody else only more so the process of uh dealing with an instrument on that level of intimacy and inspiration transforms a person and uh especially uh, those people, 
second and third generation jazz musicians who who lived that life and learned the music, you know, from the ground up. You know, not in a practice room for eight hours, but from the ground up. You know, Miles said, you can tell everything about the way I play from the way I stand. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that conversation that I recorded with him, he said, oh, man, Charlie Parker really turned me around. I said, how he did, how did he do it? And Miles said, it's, it's nothing he did, man. <laughs> it's nothing he did. <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't a syllabus, you know what I'm saying? It was just life. Absolutely. Before we depart that magical realm of, of youth, I want to know, what did Blue Mitchell do to stir your jazz soul? Oh, man. You know, it was his solo on the Horace Silver song, Juicy Lucy, uh, on that record I had when I was 13. It was something about the solo. I, I of course, memorized the solo, but there was something about that solo that talked to me in a, in a way that was phenomenological, you know? I, I, I really thought that it might be possible to translate it into English or something. I don't know. Uh, I felt after a while that I was related to him. There was something about his sound. Uh, I I was living in Racine, Wisconsin, which was kind of a, you know, basically a a Lutheran kind of environment. And I felt very alone and very isolated, not being a Lutheran, you know. And uh, I thought that Blue Mitchell was a way out. I, I, he was human contact. I, I felt that he was. Um, I, I was literally related to him. That we were family. <laughs> it's weird to be 13 years old and having those feelings, but that was my feeling. And when I found out he and Horace and all the cats were black, I, it just it it lit up in my head that you know that black is color. You know that that white is a color. It means nothing. That that this is this is a human family. Let me let me get to the beginnings of before you went to school to formally get educated on music. Before that, talk to me about your beginnings in becoming a musician. How did that start, kind of your first gig, that, that kind of evolutionary step for you? Well, my first gig, and by gig I guess the definition is I got paid for it. Uh, I must have been 14 or 15. By then I was in high school, and there was a guy who was a couple of years older than me who had a dance band. And he heard me playing, I guess, in some little room in high school. And uh, he asked me if I would want to play in his band. And the band was, you know, it must have had four horns, let's say, piano, bass, and drums. He was the bass player. He had little music stands and, and some stock, you know, dance charts. And back then, now we're talking 1956, 57, you know, the dances were like at a wide WCA, and you'd play what were jazz, not jazz, you'd play standards, you know, pop, American Songbook standards, you know, Moonlight in Vermont, Smoke It's in Your Eyes, stuff like that. And uh, my first gig, I I didn't know any better. I wore white socks. Uh, I showed up and I got paid three bucks. From there, you go to school at the University of Wisconsin. Talk to me about what you learned about music in a formal environment. You know, I never thought... Uh, about studying music, and even if I had back then, I, I, I couldn't have studied at the University of Wisconsin because it was only Western classical music and, and performance at the music department. So uh, I was uh, I signed up for something called uh, ILS, Integrated Liberal Studies, and it, it was a program that basically was uh, great books and, and classic uh, Western uh, literature and culture. And I met a bunch of kids from New York, some of them were musicians, and so I, I got 
music from them, and and they were all more advanced than I was in in bebop. You know, I mean, like back in those days, if I met somebody who knew the name Jackie McLean, for example, I immediately bonded with them because it was such a small, small number of people. And back then, you know, again, we're talking 61, 62, uh, you know, if you met somebody who smoked pot, you were one of 15 people out of 15,000. Nobody was getting high. Nobody was listening to jazz. It was really small. It was a very small scene, uh, smaller than the number of people who read ed- existentialism, you know. So I just bonded with the, most of these kids from New York. Some of them were great players. And uh, we worked. We worked uh, three or four gigs a week. We got paid like 35 bucks a night. Uh, we played, uh, well, back then, you know, you could play uh, Cannibal Adderley tunes and Art Blakey tunes at fraternity parties, and they wouldn't know the difference, you know. And so uh, that's what we did mostly. And uh, we watched all these drunk fraternity boys make fools of themselves. Uh, It was before there was any hip culture, you know. It was all rah-rah and stuff like that. So I was progressing musically even while I was reading the great books and doing stuff. And then, of course, in 1962, I guess it was, I met Steve Miller and Boz Skaggs. And these guys had a little blues band, and they didn't have a piano player. So I insinuated myself into the band. First of all, I loved the T-Bone Walker, Jimmy Reed stuff they were playing. But second of all, they were, you know, they sounded great. They sang great together. And third of all, you know, instead of getting paid 30 bucks, I got paid 50 bucks. That's when I fell in with those guys, that's when I really learned about rhythm playing and modern blues playing, let's call it. Uh, jazz was really more coming from my head, and these guys got me playing more from my feet. Let me ask you this. So you go to England, you go to the University of Sussex. What made you go overseas to school? Well, I went to Sussex to get out of the United States to avoid going to Vietnam. Uh, that simple. I, I couldn't stay in graduate school where I was because, well, I was an English lit major, and going to graduate school in English lit would have been a bridge too far for me. I was not that disciplined. And by that time, I had uh, become friends with a a great history professor here named Harvey Goldberg, uh, here being the University of Wisconsin. He was a radical. He was uh, was a communist. He was a brilliant man. And he he said to me, look, there's this school in England that has an interdisciplinary graduate program. Uh, where you can combine literature and sociology and philosophy uh, and come up, uh, you know, with a program. He said, I think uh, you should go there and I'll write you a letter. And he did, and I got accepted and I left. And so I got a student deferment and I got there and it just totally opened up my head. Harvey had insinuated this idea into my brain along the way that jazz was very important historically. He was a historian. And remember, back then, 65, 66, there were no books on jazz. Uh, There was Leroy Jones's Blues People. There were a few books, you know, Marshall Stearns. But basically, nobody talked about jazz. Nobody wrote about jazz. Nobody took jazz seriously. Jazz was that music played by those people in those clubs. So uh, when he told me, you know, I think... Jazz is very important historically and for America, and, some, and he he suggested I study it in in graduate school. And so when I got to Sussex, I went around and I met the sociologists and and all the various people, and I started 
thinking about how to talk about jazz and write about jazz in a serious way that wasn't being done. I mean, there wasn't uh, a model to do it. So I kind of cobbled it together, and uh, four years later, my Ph.D. dissertation from Sussex uh, became uh, a book that's still in print called Black Talk. And it talks about my, you know, I was interested in Marshall McLuhan and the idea of communication theory. I had studied a little semantics at San Francisco State at one point. But it was a way to talk about jazz seriously. It wasn't the only way, but it was a way. Uh, and in England, they let me do it. They encouraged me to do it. And uh, it really uh, it really set me on my path. So during that time, too, you became a studio musician for the Stones, uh, Clapton, uh, Frampton, and even Charlie Watts. How did all of that come about? What kind of learning experience was that at that point in your life? Uh, I first went in the studio in 67 when Steve Miller and Boz and those guys came over to make their first record. And they recorded in London. And I was living in Brighton, which is an hour south of London by train. So I would go to school during the day. And then at night, I'd jump on the train and go up there and, and work on the record with those guys. And they were working in Olympic Studios, which is... Uh, the iconic recording studio in, I mean, it's where the Stones and everybody in the Who, where everybody recorded. And in 67, everybody was hanging out there. And, and the guys were famous, but they weren't that famous. You know, Eric Clapton wasn't God. He was a, a good guitar player. And the Stones, you know, they were kind of rich kids, but they, you know, they weren't unapproachable. And, uh, so, I mean, it was a mingling. It was, there were a lot of people around. And then when, Steve and, and the guys went back to San Francisco. I stayed in England for another three years. And uh, so the producer of those records was a guy named Glyn Johns. Very nice cat, very smart. And Glyn and I became friends. And Glyn is the guy who hired me to play on the sessions. He would call me up and say, uh, hey, man, what are you doing? Uh, we got a session tonight. Can you come up here? And I had a car at the time. Uh, so by then I was driving up there. And it turned out, uh, for example, uh, Charlie Watts didn't drive. I don't know if he does now, but at the time he didn't drive a car. And he lived in between Brighton and London. So, uh, you know, I'd drive up to pick Charlie up, and then we'd drive to the studio, and we got to know each other, and it turned out he was a great jazz fan. And all we talked about was jazz. Uh, as a matter of fact, when, at the first time I met him, I said, Charlie, I have to apologize. You know, I don't listen to the Rolling Stones that much. And he said, well, that's all right, mate, neither do we. And I realized that they were just guys. And I think if there was one takeaway from the experience of recording in in London, it was that they were just, again, they were just guys. You know, this whole pose of the Rolling Stones being street fighting men or whatever, that was theater, man. And that, that wasn't real. They knew it wasn't real. The fact that the rest of the world was celebrating it, uh, it was kind of... Uh, it, it 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 was an act, and so I guess my main takeaway was that that was the music business up until that time. I was into music from the point of view of sociology. What does it mean? What does this music mean? How why is this music so important? And when I left England, I realized music was a business; that it was theater. You know, the one thing I want to get into real quick about what you were talking about, there was no real research on jazz. You know, it just didn't exist. And I, I go back to an interview with Chuck Ezreal's at one point. I was talking about his time with Stan and those guys, and he just kind of stopped at one point and said, you have to understand, when this was happening in the heyday, 
No one was like, oh, wow, this is jazz. We're, we're setting this, we're trailblazing this path for the future. People were just playing music from Coltrane all the way down. So my question to you is this. Do you get the sense in your history of studying jazz and these cats that really made this important landmark, this invention that jazz refined so well as jazz, that they were even cognizant of the vortex they were creating? Or do you think they were just guys that were making music? Well, they certainly knew what they were doing was important. There's no question about it. Important in a spiritual way, in a philosophical way, in a cultural way. They knew that, absolutely, because you can feel it. You can feel that energy on the stand. You can feel that distance from so-called normalcy in the life. You know, there was no doubt that it was a special calling and that people who, who followed it were special people. That's for sure. The fact that today there are half a million kids studying jazz in high school and college and, and are looking to them uh, for answers, no, that that wouldn't have occurred. When you met cats back in the day, you know, when you got next to Johnny Griffin or you got next to Dizzy, what you met was this life force. You met this deep well of humor and compassion that came from being a musician. You know, Dizzy once said, man, this music is so hard to play, we don't have time not to be peaceful people. And, you know, you learn from... These, it, it, there was a, it was an oral tradition, man. I mean, what you, you did is you got next to your elders, and basically they told you to go find out who you are, be yourself, you know. And then you went on the on the hunt. Um, and the fact that people think that there were answers there other than play your instrument, uh, I don't think would have uh, occurred to them. You know, you're a very diversified cat yourself. You know, the pianist. You're a vocalist, producer, composer, radio. Let me ask you this. Each of those elements that make you who you are, do you, do you see any distinction between each of them? For instance, when you produce albums for Van Morrison and Diana Ross and you're in that role or you're composing a soundtrack for Hoop Dreams or you're on stage, do all of these kind of blend? Do the arcs come in to make you Ben or do each of them have their own distinct flavor as far as who you are as a creator? That's a good question because I've come to discover that it's all the same thing. Uh, they all feel the same to me. Um, they're all the same in that it's all just an exercise in being in the moment and trying to contribute to what's going on in the moment, trying to be yourself. You know, when you're in a recording studio, what you want to do is create an environment so that everybody can be themselves. I mean, you're coming in, you're going to serve the song, you're going to serve the music. Uh, any artifice in that situation is simply going to get in the way. It's the same thing when you're producing somebody. It's the same thing when you're trying to write. It's the same, it's the same thing. Uh, and beyond that, if I, if I had one definition, you know, for what I'm trying to do, uh, it's to, it, it's kind of all related to journalism in the sense that it's all related to trying to tell a story. Uh, uh, trying to relate the experiences I've had it uh, to to the outside world. I mean, if I didn't want to do that, I guess there'd be no reason in playing or writing. That the the drive to communicate is is primary, and having a story to tell is probably secondary. You know, when you sit back in the easy chair at the end of the day, you've done a lot of amazing work with the NPR Jazz Alive series, the VH1 New Vision, the books that you've written. When you sit back and just close your eyes and think about your life as a 
storyteller. How do you feel? I mean, is there a sense of accomplishment or is it a sense that this is something you have to do to survive? Jeez, that's a good question. Uh, no, there's never a sense of uh, it being past. It's, it's always in the future. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, Miles said, uh, man, if I couldn't create, I'd just want to be dead. Uh, that was pretty cold, but he said yeah. <laughs> I I I don't have the wherewithal to be that strong about it, but I guess that's the truth. If if I don't think about it, Joe, to be honest with you, I just wake up in the morning and do the work. Every morning I wake up and and there's some work ahead of me, you know. Whether it's and and if there's nothing specific, if the phone doesn't ring, I'll go to the piano and sit there for two hours and play. And uh, it, it's all about do the work, do the work, do the work. It's the one thing my son is so tired of hearing me say that. But, you know, like through the years when, you know, things weren't going right and, you know, you have to give some fatherly advice, the only thing I could think to say to him was do the work. Just do the work. Don't worry about anything else. Just do the work. So when I'm sitting back at night uh, in that easy chair, I'm probably thinking about what's the work for tomorrow. Have you always maintained that adrenal sense of joy that since you were 13 and you listened to Horace about this work. I mean, every phone call, every interview, every song, every stage, every CD that's released, has there always been this kind of holding on to this very sacred part of you that gives you that adrenal joy? Well, I, I guess rather uh, than experiencing it as a holding on, I, it, it feels more like a release. It's like releasing it, releasing it, letting go of this, letting it go, letting it go, feeling what it feels like to release. It's more of an exhale than an inhale, you know. It's like having uh, having something come out of you that's in there that needs to come out. I, uh, I've, I've always felt this relief from the first time I, I heard Pine Tops Boogie, you know. I heard that thing and it just, what I remember, you know, it, it, I didn't tell you the whole story, but I, I, when I was this little kid and I heard this music, I went running around the, the room. I heard it on a record in the living room. We had this old Motorola, well, it wasn't old then, you know, record player, and I was playing this thing. And I, I, it just flipped me out. And I ran around the room and I broke a lamp and I, I just flipped out <laughs> listening to the music. And I think that that's still kind of the essential uh I mean, I'm not breaking lamps anymore, but you know what I mean? It's, there's, there's something in it that's essentially a release. Yeah, that's a nice Norman Rockwell crystallized moment for sure. I, I painted a good picture in my head. Um, you know, the one thing that strikes me too is it almost seems like you've lived – what you've done could be compressed into multiple lives. There's so much that you've done. So when you look back on your career – that's even the appropriate word to encapsulate what you've done after all these years. 30-plus albums, all of the books, all of the interviews, everything that you've put into this world that's celebrating not only jazz but music. How do you feel about what you have done as a creator? I feel grateful. I feel grateful for having the opportunity. I really do. I've been very lucky. You know, I, I've, I've, I've been in situations and on scenes and uh, that, you know, through no fault of my own, I got to participate in a lot of stuff. I feel really grateful. Um, it's nothing you could, you know. I I I tried my best 
at one point to be a, a college professor because of my parents instilled that in me that that was a high calling and I failed you know I didn't I wasn't that good at it frankly now I'm good at it back then I wasn't good at it and so I approached this whole life in music uh, w- with the sense of having failed at something else really and uh, so me and this this whole body of work is kind of a, a form of recovery uh, this wasn't my primary thought this is what happened after I thought I failed uh, as an academic. So if there's any message in it, it's, you know, jazz is the art of recovery, that music helps you not just physically recover, but it shows you a technique for recovering. You know, like when you're uh, playing, when you're in the middle of a solo, time is going by, You, if you blow an idea, if, if, if something happens that you didn't intend, you don't have time to go back and, and examine it. You have to go forward. So you have to recover from whatever you perceived to have been a mistake, let's say. And so, I, you know, I've been very lucky to have not only learned that intellectually, but to learn it physically, that uh, it's, it's all about recovery in this life. That's, that's my experience. I love that quote, Jez, the art of recovery. You know, you're you're a very cultured, well-traveled man. You probably could have lived anywhere in the world, and obviously you grew up in Wisconsin. But what was it about Wisconsin that called you back home that made this your home? Um, and, and that goes to the to the essence of of how I've gotten through this this uh, fifty years, and that is uh, my wife Judy. I met Judy here in Madison as a student. She was 18, I was 22. We moved to England, then we moved to Los Angeles, and I got in the record business. And I was doing really well. I was producing. I was driving a Porsche through Hollywood. And one night I came home, and Judy was miserable. She hated L.A. And she said, let's just go back to Madison, Wisconsin, for the summer, you know, and and recollect our thoughts and find where we want to live. She said, but I don't want to live in L.A. This place is too shallow. Uh, it's, she, she said specifically, I think it's, it's not good for you. I think the, this, the scene in LA is not good for you and I don't think we should be here. And, um, the fact was I, I didn't care one way or the other about where I lived, but I cared deeply about being with her. So I said, sure, great. And that was it. I didn't think twice about it. And we came here and, um, you know, life just continued. <laughs> the first thing I had to do is uh, invent a way to make a living, and the second thing was to write a bunch of songs so I could make another record, and then, you know, it, it, things went from there. But that's what, that's literally the reason we're in Madison, Wisconsin today. Wonderful. You know, the beautiful thing about interviews is that you get you you get a kind of exchange you and you get to feel that other person. And my question is this. After all of the interviews that you've been through, I don't want to know your favorite ones or just the craziest stories, but what interviews did you have with folks where they really helped you change your view on life and help you grow as a human? Like things they said that may not have hit you huge at the time but settled in some way and you thought, man, that was profound. It's not just the interviews, but the experience of doing the interviews, as you know. You know, the lead-up to it, the interview, and then what happens afterwards. And a lot of times what happens afterwards uh, is is where the the sting really comes. I mean, I remember after... uh, I I spent an afternoon in a hotel suite with Dizzy Gillespie in Chicago. It was hysterically funny. But at the end of it, 
as I was saying goodbye to him, he 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 put his hand on me and he said, "Ben, you keep your heart right. You'll be okay." Mm. And I took that as a, as a blessing, you know. Um, talking to Tony Williams about Miles, because I, I was kind of tight with Tony. I had produced a record for him, and you know, uh, he was an odd duck, kind of like I'm an odd duck in the sense that he was on a personal mission, and I, I, we we talked a lot about Miles. And uh, basically, what I took from that is that there was nothing that Miles ever said. It was simply Miles' existence made you know that it was okay to be who you were. And hearing that from Tony, somehow it stuck with me, that it's okay to be who you are. Not only is it okay, it's your best shot. Your best shot in this world is to be yourself. Because, as the joke goes, you know, if you try to be anybody else, you're guaranteed to be second best. So, uh, hearing that from Tony really stayed with me. Um, you know, that moment of shaking McCoy's hand and having him say, don't do that to me, that really stayed with me. Yeah. Uh, Jackie McLean, man, one day I came home and there was a message on my answering machine from Jackie McLean about about the book Black Talk. He had just read it, and he loved it. And, you know, you write a book like Black Talk, it's controversial. You know, some people love it, some people hate it, and it's like being in a windstorm when you do something like that. And to have Jackie say, yeah, man, you know, that that made me feel it's okay to write about the music. This was very early on, you know, maybe 74. And I, I, it... it it made it okay. Stuff like that stayed with me. Uh, the interviews, man, there is one interview, and that was the interview with Pepper Adams that completely uh, stood out from all the others. Because Pepper, it was at the end of his life, and he was clearly dealing with cancer. And, you know, Pepper was just an incredible musician and player who really never got his due, who, who never appeared on the cover of a magazine, anything like that. And... You know, one of my favorite Monk records is Monk at Town Hall, and I, I asked Pepper about those sessions because he played this great solo on Little Rudy Tootie, and I asked him about that. And instead of talking about the rehearsals and the sessions, what he talked about was the, uh, the critic for the New York Times who panned the gig and the record, and he said, you know, that man, that was my one chance to play with Monk, and because the review was so bad, the rest of our tour got canceled. And I... I made it a point at, at, in that moment to uh, call out people when they're talking about music for their own personal gain and, and to say to them, you know, people are, are giving their lives out here to try to say something and do something. And don't be, don't be flip. Don't be uh, clever about what you say about this music because this is someone's life. Uh, this is serious, and this is important. And that came out of talking to Pepper. Wonderful. You know, of all these interviews and vignettes you've strung together for me, I want to kind of ask you kind of an ethereal sort of question here. If you could get granted a wish from the universe to run into miles in a dream, now with all this mileage since his passing and everything the world has said, the movies, the books, the assumptions and the presumptions, if you could ask Miles one question that you would have the chance to transcribe and put down and absorb, what one question would you ask him after all of this time? 
Well, it would be selfish. I would ask him about those pretty notes he played. You know, he said, oh, they're just major notes that need to be played. But I'd be selfish. I'd, I'd, I'd say, Miles, would you come over to the keyboard here and just show me? Show me the kind of moves that you, that you, you make intuitively? Because Miles is the music, man. You know, he said it himself. You know, it's it's just the music. He said, he said, yeah, I do this and I do that, but the most important thing for me is the music. That's all I'm about. And so the music, you you get miles in the music. You get the man. You get the story. You know, it's like everything else is details. And and you can, I mean, we all saw this Miles movie, man, and it was a fiction, of course. You know, I walked out of there thinking, you know, Miles probably would have dug seeing himself as a gangster. He might have enjoyed it, right? But, you know, I have a mutual friend who was one of Miles' girlfriends during this period that the movie was about. And I asked her what she thought about it. And she said, oh, it's just ridiculous, man. If you went over to Miles' house during that period, there were just musicians talking about music. It wasn't like that. There were just guys (laughs) playing music. So... You know what I'm saying? It, it, yeah. It's really, it's about the music, man. The music is transformative. It's what I said about, you know, spending your life blowing through a horn. Horn doesn't change, you change completely. It's about the music. You know, we gotta, we gotta get back to principles here, man. It's, the music is something special, man. It's about yeah. the music. I'm gonna stay in this kind of fantastical realm here of kind of fiction and ask you, if you could get into that jazz DeLorean, docks at the wheel, you can punch the digits in, you can go back in time and see that one show at that one place. Where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to go to 52nd Street, and I'm going to go to, you know, Bob City or something. Uh, I don't know if it's the one show. I'm going to go there when when Bird is playing and Max and those cats are hanging. And I just want to be off in the corner, you know, just watching that scene, watching those guys talk to each other listening to the energy coming off the stage. Uh, that, to me, is uh, ground zero for the music I love. Uh, if I could be in, in, in New York in, in the late 40s uh, uh, and, and experience what that was, you know, uh, Phil Woods once talked to me about that scene from the 50s when he got there as a kid. And he said it was it was like a little town where everybody took care of each other. And he talked about coming to uh, New York on a bus when he was 16 years old and going to Jim and Andy's and these places and having the musicians, you know, look after him. And it was, I said to him, Phil, it sounds like you were raised by wolves. And he said, well, yeah, it was kind of like that, man. But everybody took that. That's what I would like to experience. So let's hone in that love just a little bit more here, and let me generically ask you this. Why you've dedicated your life to it, you clearly love it, but why do you love jazz? Uh, Why do I love my wife? I don't know, man. Love is a mystery. Love is a mystery, but it becomes all-encompassing. You know, it speaks to you. It becomes the best of who you are. It brings out the best of who you are. How about that? That's, I think, what's really true. What you love makes you a better person and brings out the best of who you are. That's okay. the question. If you're in a relationship with somebody and they don't bring out the best of you, get out of that relationship, man. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone has a version of who you are, Ben. Your family, your wife, your friends, your those that you play for, the people that buy your music. But when you wake up, you face the world, who do you think you are? 
oh man, who do I think I am? Well, I'm probably still that 13 year old kid waking <laughs> up and and you know wondering what the work is today, uh, and hoping to do something good, you know, and hoping to to make it a little better. It, it's it's really uh, it's amazing, you know, the the awfulness of this. Uh, of this political situation that we're in, the awfulness of a world of greed, the awfulness, the shallowness of the virtual reality and the internet and all this stuff. You know, we're buried under, under, you know, there's an expression, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And we live in a world of indifference, you know, people don't care and people are only addicted to convenience and stuff. And I wake up every morning, uh, determined to live, a, a life, even if it's very small, of caring. I want to care about what I do. I want to care about the people I care about. I want to care about the music. I want to care about being present when I'm talking to you. And, and that's that's how I want to wake. I, actually, I have no choice. That's not a choice. That's kind of what living the jazz life has trained me to do. That's what I'm trained to do. I like that. That's a great way to wrap everything up. Ben, thank you for everything that you've done for music, for jazz, and making the world a better place. Thank you for opening up with me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks uh, Thanks for calling me up. Straight ahead. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ben for his prodigious contribution to music, jazz, and the world at large. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Do you, Mr. Jones? Neon Jazz.